Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible lets you pick from thousands of audiobooks across every genre. As a new member, you can get a 30-day trial subscription free, and you can download and keep one free book. And if you sign up using my special code, audibletrial.com slash unksoldierspod, you will contribute $15 towards this podcast, so we can eventually get to the really obscure stuff. This week, it is the second anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, so I am recommending The Gates of Europe, A History of Ukraine by Serhii Ploki, an excellent account of this very misunderstood nation that has filled the headlines. This book goes all the way up to the Maidan Revolution of 2014. It is a great history by a Ukrainian historian and Harvard professor, and it is free for a first-time listener. Once again, audibletrial.com slash unksoldierspod. On with the show. The year, 1896. The place, Ethiopia. The age of European imperialism is in full swing, and they have overrun every kingdom in Africa, except one. The people of Ethiopia prepare to resist the Italian invasion. At a place called Adwa, the last king of Africa will fight one of history's decisive battles. I'm James Hauser, and welcome to Unknown Soldiers. Welcome back to the Unknown Soldiers Podcast. I am, as always, your host, James Hauser, and this is episode 52, The Last King of Africa. Guys, I am thrilled to be sharing this one with you. It's one of my favorite historical events featuring one of my favorite historical civilizations. I'm excited. This episode is about how Ethiopia was the only African country to successfully resist European conquest in the 19th century. The centerpiece of this story is the Battle of Adwa, one of the decisive battles of history that not a lot of people know. This is the moment when European domination of the globe began to unravel one of the turning points of the modern world. So get psyched. Also, just a quick update, we're back to our full-length episodes. We spent long enough in South America, and we've, we're back to globe-hopping. We're in Africa, we'll be bouncing over to the Middle East and India and Europe to close out Season 2. We've got three more full-length episodes left in the season, and then I'm taking a, a pretty decent break to get us ready for Season 3. I'm a busy man. I'm in the middle of buying a house and moving, probably. Uh, schedule might get touchy down the road, but I will get the episodes out when I can. And I don't know how long this break is going to be. I might need longer than I thought, but we'll get there. But you guys don't need my life story. Let's get moving up into the Ethiopian highlands, where we, where we will bear witness to the glorious epic of Adwa. As always, this is not just history, but military history. There's some dark and bloody stuff going on. Podcast is PG-13, language is clean, content is not. Small content warning today for those of you who don't want to hear about, um, castration. Yeah, we're going to talk about dudes chopping each other's dude pieces off. Fair warning. Be alert. <laughs> Second, all my sources will be posted on my website, unknownsoldierspodcast.com, for all your fact-checking needs. Finally, any errors, mispronunciations, or mistakes are my own. I am terrified of mispronouncing every Ethiopian name in this episode. I probably will. I'm doing my best. I don't speak Amharic. Still, everything I'm telling you is accurate to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story with real people who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers. 
it will come as no surprise that I love me a good battle painting. One of my favorites is Julian Russell's stories, The Black Prince at Crecy, a huge painting at the Telfair Museum in Savannah, Georgia. You should check it out if you're ever in the area. You are not prepared for how big this painting is. But another favorite painting of mine comes from the brush of Ethiopian artist Solomon Belichu. In 1970, he created an amazing depiction of his nation's epic, the Battle of Adwa. The painting depicts a battle between two armies, one on the left, one on the right. The army on the left is the Ethiopian army. They are led by multiple commanders, including an emperor on horseback and his empress, a woman firing a revolver and wielding a red umbrella. The Ethiopian soldiers have their faces canted towards the viewer. We see them as individuals, various shades of skin, all their uniforms are different. They wield diverse weapons, including rifles, cannons, swords, and spears. Their enemies are the Italians, a disciplined 19th century European army. Their uniforms and weapons are identical, their faces are identical, and in profile, not facing the viewer. The painting tells us who to empathize with. This is an underdog story, a diverse, heroic people coming together versus a faceless, uniform, almost machine-like enemy. Belichu's painting is also not realistic. It is highly stylized, colorful, symbolic. It reminds you more of a medieval painting than a work of modern art. But this is purposeful. This is a purposeful decision by the artist. The painting depicts not just a battle, but a sacred event. The Ethiopian leaders carry crosses and sing heavenly praise. Their priests play horns and drums. And at the top of the painting is St. George, patron saint of Ethiopia, a halo adorning his head, aiming his spear at the Italians. The medieval style is symbolic. This is church art. Belichu's painting is part of a genre. There are lots of painting like this. Many Ethiopian portrayals of this battle have the Ethiopians on the left, Italians on the right, heroic battle between them, and St. George overhead. One of the earliest paintings, commissioned in 1897, shows a scene from the Old Testament, Pharaoh's forces drowning in the Red Sea. But in this version, Pharaoh's soldiers carry rifles and wear pith helmets. The Europeans invaded Africa with a Bible in hand, but the Ethiopians are asserting that God was on their side, that this African victory over Europeans was a Christian victory. Okay, James, enough about the pretty pictures, right? But these paintings are important for what they reveal about the battle's impact. There is a spiritual, universal side to Adwa that goes beyond the purely military and political. It wasn't just an Ethiopian event, but a world event. It was a triumph for the colonized over the colonizer that shook the European empires to their foundations. It was a symbol of hope for millions worldwide. It was a victory won by the last truly independent country in a continent Europeans said they had conquered, and its emperor, Menelik II, the last king of Africa. Today, we'll be talking about the First Italo-Ethiopian War, 1895-1896, we meet the ancient, unique nation of Ethiopia, an African kingdom with a Christian tradition that predates the fall of the Roman Empire. We will see how Ethiopia's leaders defied the odds to unify their country and prepare its defense. We will discover why Italy, a latecomer to the imperial game, put them in its crosshairs. We will witness the Battle of Adwa and talk about how decisive it was, not just for Ethiopia or Italy, but for the world. And at the end, I'll tell you why it matters. 
You should care, and I'm going to tell you why. And of course, you're going to get some breaks. These are your chance to pause and catch all those Super Bowl commercials that your co-workers still won't shut up about. So load your rifle, strap on your chotel, don your headdress, and join the chanting of the priests. The invaders have come on a boat to conquer your land, but they don't know who they're dealing with. The Lion of Judah leads us, St. George is with us, and the Exia Beher smiles down upon us. Who can withstand their glory? Let's go on campaign. They called it the Scramble for Africa. By the mid-19th century, Europeans dominated most of the world, but the interior of Africa was largely untouched. But not for long. In the space of a few short decades, Europeans conquered most of what they called the Dark Continent. The Scramble for Africa, this rapid conquest, happened for three big reasons. First was what Rudyard Kipling called the white man's burden, the duty to bring civilization and Christianity and commerce to the savages. I mean, okay, some people genuinely did believe this, as condescending as it was, but no empire is built to benefit the imperialized. They might say that, but their actions will show you otherwise. Because the first reason often concealed the second reason for the scramble for Africa. Profit. See, for instance, King Leopold II of Belgium, whose Congo Free State was supposedly a humanitarian mission. In practice, the Congo became a giant rubber plantation that killed over 10 million people. Even the other European powers were kind of skeeved out when, uh, when the Belgians started chopping off kids' hands for not parsing enough rubber for their rubber quota this week. Yeah, even the other Europeans were like, ooh, that, that, I don't like that. But they weren't innocent. The French, the British, the Germans, the Portuguese, all exploited and brutalized the natives to eke out a profit. This was harder than it looked because a lot of these colonies were net drains on the countries that conquered them. They weren't profitable. This brings us to the third reason. Prestige. Glory. National pride. If you were a European power and you didn't have colonies, you were a nobody. Even Belgium and Portugal have colonies, guys. Get on their level. It was called the Scramble for Africa because it literally was. European countries elbowing each other aside to grab some strip of desert they had no other reason to want. Millions of Africans died in this bloody game of one-upmanship between the great powers of Europe. In 1885, there's this big meeting called the Congress of Berlin, where all the European powers sat down and basically just drew a bunch of random lines on the map to divide Africa up like a jigsaw puzzle, with no regard for the people living there, <laughs> by any means. But they thought this was fine, because they saw Africans as less human, if not less than human. Who cared what they thought? This was the age of nuclear weapons-grade racism, after all. Europeans talked about human rights and human dignity and the right of peoples to rule themselves, yada yada yada, but they were very clear that these did not apply to Africans. And this included diplomacy. The idea that Dahomey or Buganda or Zululand was a real country like France or Germany, 
That was absurd. No African nation could be equal to a European nation. They drew the lines they wanted and it didn't matter what people on the ground thought. The proper place for Africans was under the European boot. The European conquest faced many obstacles. Disease, especially malaria, was the big one. The terrain was ridiculous. Jungles, deserts, swamps, mountains, and huge distances, which made logistics extremely difficult. And of course, Africans did not want to be conquered, and they made sure people knew that by attacking them and killing them. <laughs> but the Europeans had several advantages over Africans that added up to almost overwhelming military superiority. The first was firepower. Africans had gunpowder weapons, they had muskets and cannons, they'd had them for centuries. But European weapons were better. Magazine-fed repeating rifles, quick-firing artillery, and British inventor Hiram Maxim's recoil-operated machine gun, the Maxim gun. French author Hilaire Belloc said that Europeans didn't need to worry about Africans. Why? Whatever happens, we have got the Maxim gun, and they have not. But weapons weren't enough. Many Africans got the new hardware, but they didn't have the software, the soft skills enabling them to use these weapons to their maximum potential. High discipline and superior tactics constantly enabled very small European forces to defeat African forces many times their size. Especially on the defense from a fortified position, the combination of European discipline and firepower chewed through African armies. The European military edge wasn't new. What really enabled the scramble for Africa was the Industrial Revolution. Railroads and steamboats loosened the iron hand of logistics, allowing Europeans to penetrate deep into the jungles and cross enormous deserts. And new medicines like quinine made disease less of a factor. These enabled Europeans to penetrate the African interior. And Europe's favorite strategy when they did make contact with the Africans was divide and conquer. Africa is a massive, diverse continent. Lots of different countries or peoples had beef, and Europeans took advantage of that beef to play them against each other and get their foot in the door. Division between Africans, civil wars, dynastic feuds, ethnic tensions, all of these hamstrung resistance to European rule. They couldn't unite against their invader. Many Africans joined the colonizers, fought beside them or even in their armies as colonial troops. Europeans never could have conquered Africa without the assistance of Africans. Put together, these advantages seemed overwhelming. To most people, it seemed like white people were going to rule the world forever. After all, who could stop them? Western militaries marched from victory to victory. There were setbacks, like Custer's defeat at Little Bighorn in 1876, or the Zulu victory over the British in 1879. But these victories were temporary. The white man still won those wars. That was their final advantage. You can beat them once. You can even beat them embarrassingly. But they always have more troops, more guns, more money. They'll come back, and you won't be so lucky next time. In 1876, Europeans controlled only 10% of Africa. By 1914, they controlled around 95%. In less than four decades, they had all but conquered the world's second largest continent. But what was that 5%? Well, that's our story. The story of Ethiopia. Ethiopia is one of the world's oldest civilizations. 
Empires dating back to ancient Egypt have risen from the Ethiopian highlands, green hills with sweeping vistas and a thriving population. The name Ethiopia is Greek, meaning burnt faces, but eventually they adopted it for themselves, so it's, it's okay. <laughs> the Roman Empire coexisted with the Kingdom of Aksum, the biggest Ethiopian empire, which lasted for almost a thousand years from the 100s BC to the 900s AD. In the 3rd century AD, the Persian religious leader Mani described the four great powers of the world as the Romans, the Persians, the Chinese, and the Ethiopians, who are also called the Abyssinians a lot. There's like, it's interchangeable. Ethiopian, Abyssinian, same thing. Ethiopia appears several times in the Bible. In 1 Kings chapter 10, the Queen of Sheba, a state often identified as Ethiopia, visits King Solomon bearing gifts. But according to the Kebra Nagas, the 14th century Ethiopian chronicle, the Queen of Sheba came home bearing Solomon's gift. Their son, Menelik, was the first king of what Ethiopians called the Solomonic dynasty. Every Ethiopian monarch since then has claimed descent from David and Solomon, the kings of Israel. There's a second biblical story about Ethiopia. Acts 8 describes an Ethiopian government official visiting Palestine, Roman-ruled Palestine at the time, when he runs into Philip the Evangelist. Philip baptizes this Ethiopian who goes home with the news of God's risen son. Whether or not this was true, in 330 AD, Ethiopia became, after Armenia, the second country on earth to adopt Christianity. So Ethiopia had a Christian church older than anything in Europe, which traced its legendary roots to the biblical kingdom of Israel. The Ethiopian Orthodox Tewahedo Church is still the majority religion in Ethiopia today, and it is like the Armenian Orthodox and Coptic Church of Egypt, one of the Oriental Orthodox churches with a distinct and separate tradition from Western Christianity. So these guys aren't Catholic, Protestant, or even Eastern Orthodox. Ethiopian Orthodoxy places a lot more emphasis on the Old Testament, and some of its traditions bear a strong resemblance to Islam and Judaism. Women cover their heads, church services are separated by gender, and they wash their faces and take off their shoes before prayer. Ethiopian church architecture is brilliant, carved directly from the rock, like the ancient church of St. George in Lalibela. And Ethiopian church music has a unique centuries-old tradition. Finally, Ethiopians claim to possess the Ark of the Covenant. They, they, they say they have it. The Ark allegedly resides beneath the Church of Our Lady Mary of Zion in the city of Aksum, once the center of an ancient Christian empire. Did anyone tell Indiana Jones the Ethiopians had the Ark this whole time? Ethiopian civilization continued throughout the Middle Ages. The Aksumite Empire fell in the 900s AD. In 1270, Yakuno Amlak, who claimed descent from Solomon, founded a new Ethiopian empire that dominated East Africa for the next seven centuries. The Solomonic dynasts wielded the title of Negusa Negast, King of Kings, the Emperors of Ethiopia. They oversaw the Ethiopian Golden Age with a flowering of art, literature, and music, the growth of cities and commerce, and a powerful military throughout the late Middle Ages. Ethiopian priests even showed up to church councils in Western Europe when the Pope called church council, and these guys show up and the Europeans are like, who, who are you? And they're like, oh, we're from the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. And the Europeans are like, the what? Anyway, 
But empires rise and fall, and defeats by Muslim powers like the Ottomans and the Adal Sultanate sent Ethiopia into decline. The Orthodox Church lost total dominance, and many people, especially the Oromo and the Somalis to the south and east, converted to Islam. Ethiopian historians call this period the Zemene Mesafint, the Era of the Princes. There was still an empire, in theory. In practice, it was a free-for-all between the provincial warlords. It looked like Ethiopia was on the verge of a disintegration in the early modern period. The era of the princes continued into the 19th century, just as the scramble for Africa was beginning. Europe had been aware of Ethiopia for centuries. It was usually regarded as a mysterious and remote land, often associated with Prester John, a legendary Christian king in the East who Europeans thought would help them fight the Muslims. Medieval and early modern monarchs often regarded Ethiopia as an equal, a fellow Christian power that deserved respect, hence them showing up to that church council. But by the scramble for Africa, that had changed. Respect for Ethiopia's ancient heritage and the sentiments of Christian brotherhood were swamped by imperialist racism. Europe Ethiopians didn't matter how ancient or religious they were, they were African, black, valid targets for colonial exploitation. As the Ethiopians fought each other in the Zemene Mesafint, the Europeans were coming. The British and the French were pushing inland, and explorers popped up looking for the sources of the Nile. Africa's oldest empire was in a race it didn't even know it was running. They had a few years to get it together before the scramble for Africa began, and the colonizers swallowed them whole. Ethiopia's revival began with a new emperor. In 1855, a former bandit leader named Kasa Hailu seized the throne, claiming descent from Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. He took the royal name Theodros, or Theodore II. Theodros II was the first strong emperor in a century. His goal was to re-establish central authority, reform the government, and build a new modern military. This would not be easy. Royal authority was weak, the government barely functioned, Muslim warlords ruled the eastern part of the country, and Ethiopia's main port of Massawa was controlled by the Egyptians. Finally, Theodros had to deal with the powerful princes of the Ethiopian highlands. His problems came mainly from two rebellious provinces. Tigray, led by the ambitious warlord Ras Kassa in the northern highlands, and Showa in the southern highlands. When Theodros had enough of Showa's rebellions, he put his protege, Prince Saleh Maryam, on the throne of Showa. Saleh Maryam had been raised at Theodros's court and saw him as something like a father. Though Saleh Maryam wouldn't change his name until later, to avoid confusion, I'm going to go ahead and start calling him Menelik. As a ruler, Theodros was a reformer. He rebuilt Ethiopia's government, rewrote the tax code, reintroduced salaries and pay for regional officials, and most of all, he sought to build a modern military. Theodros created a new standing army from the old feudal levies and local militias. He trained them in drill, streamlined their logistics, and introduced more artillery. The biggest problem was a lack of modern weaponry. Most men still carried old matchlock muskets or shotguns. Theodros's new army was a big step forward, but it was still small, poorly armed, and poorly organized, and Ethiopia was still disunited. And then in 1868, Theodros pissed off the British Empire. 
General Robert Napier invaded Ethiopia with a division of British and Indian regulars, mounted on war elephants, wielding state-of-the-art weaponry. Napier would have run afoul of the iron hand of logistics, but Ethiopia's divisions came back to haunt them. Teodros's rival Kassa, the ruler of Tigray, kept the British invasion supplied in exchange for a truckload full of modern firearms. So at the Battle of Magdala, April 10, 1868, the British army had every advantage. They had divided and conquered, using local support to keep their army supplied, and they outnumbered their enemy. Teodros's standing army, his pride and joy, was no match for Napier's 13,000 redcoats. Their rifles, their artillery, and discipline and tactics. The British smashed Teodros's army, and he committed suicide. In the first major battle between Ethiopian and European, the white man had won a shattering victory. This was Ethiopia's wake-up call. The British had just come to rough them up a little bit. They had not come to stay. But if they had, it was clear that no one could have stopped them. Ethiopia had to get better at fighting the colonizers, and they had to get better fast. Get good, or get conquered. Ras Kassa, ruler of Tigray, had betrayed Theodoros by supplying the British invasion, but he used the modern weapons they gave him to realize his own dreams of empire. He seized the throne in 1871, taking the name Johannes, or John, IV. Despite his dubious means of ascension, Johannes IV shared his predecessor's mission of unifying and strengthening Ethiopia. He had the weapons he got from the British, including hundreds of older rifles and some mountain howitzers, but he bought more weapons from abroad and captured even more from his enemies. And Johannes had enemies. There were the Egyptians, who were trying to conquer the Ethiopian highlands from Massawa on the Red Sea. There were the Mahdists, or Dervishes, a radical Islamic sect that had taken over the Sudan. And there were the princes. The main guy to keep an eye on was Menelik, king of Shawa, Teodros' protege. Menelik submitted to Johannes' authority, for now, but both men knew that if he saw a chance or saw a moment of weakness, he would strike. But Johannes IV was a strong emperor and a brilliant general. This showed itself when he defeated two Egyptian invasions in the 1870s. The Egyptian army was modeled on Western armies, it had modern weapons, and it was trained and led by lots of Western officers, including, of all people, several former Confederate generals who were in Egyptian service and invading Ethiopia. <laughs> but Johannes defeated the Egyptians and their Confederate leaders in two major battles, at Gundet in 1875 and Gura in 1876. Johannes's main subordinate in these battles, Ras Alula, became an Ethiopian hero, and he went on to defeat the Mahdists at Kufit in 1885. So that's three major Ethiopian victories against their invaders. We are improving. Johannes used his military victories to solidify his rule, and not a moment too soon. Because it was the 1880s, the scramble for Africa was in full swing, and Ethiopia was next on the menu. In 1885, the British took over Egypt, including its coastal outpost of Massawa on the north coast of Ethiopia. Johannes had been an ally of the British for years, and he, kept, he maintained this alliance in exchange for their promise that they would give him Massawa, which had been Ethiopian imperial territory. 
Masawa would be super valuable to Ethiopia. They needed a port city to trade and open up to the world and buy weapons and modern technology. And Johannes helped the British a lot when they were fighting the Mahdists of Sudan, like he was giving them material support in their wars of conquest. But then the British said, look, we did promise to give you Masawa, but you're African. Our promises to you don't count. You're not a real country. But the British didn't want Masawa. So instead of giving it to Ethiopia, they gave it to another European country that really wanted a chunk of Africa to wear like a piece of bling. So the British are like, eh, deal's off. I gave Masawa to Italy. Johannes is like, wait, we're not a real country, but they are? The Italians? The Kingdom of Italy was still very new when it entered the scramble for Africa. Italy was divided until 1861, when it came together as a unified kingdom under the House of Savoy. But the new kingdom had a whole mess of issues. Its economy was weak, the government was corrupt, northern and southern Italians hated each other, and politically, <laughs> sheesh, you can't spell instability without Italy. Italy also suffered from a lack of military glory. Once upon a time, the Roman Empire had been an unstoppable juggernaut, but those days were long gone. Italy in the 19th and 20th centuries had a very dubious military record. Giuseppe Garibaldi had performed miracles with his band of volunteers during the Wars of Independence, but in 1866, the Italian army just boloed a war with Austria-Hungary. And this is Austria-Hungary! Like, you're, you're, you're getting beat up by the weak kid. Italy's military prestige was in the gutter. They were the Jacksonville Jaguars of Europe. They were desperate for a win. Some believe that Italy's path to national greatness lay through Africa. The most prominent of these guys was, okay, I promise you're not ready for this guy's name. Prime Minister Francesco Crispi. Yes, Crispi. You're like, James, is this going to be a thing? Oh yeah, I'm going to give this guy hell. Francesco Crispi was prime minister during much of the scramble for Africa. He was a brutish, hyper-nationalist authoritarian, a loud man with a furious temper. He had been found guilty of bigamy three times, which is probably pretty average for Italian politicians. King Umberto I of Italy, who was an imperialist and nationalist himself, said, Crispi is a pig, but a necessary pig. Crispy the pig? The man is a pork rind. Many historians see him as the precursor to Benito Mussolini, and he sounds just as ridiculous. Because Crispy, like many nationalist leaders past and present, believed that a good foreign war would spark Italian patriotism and help unify their nation. And with Italy surrounded by European powers that would stuff it in the locker if they tried anything, they looked to Africa. Italy was late to the table in the scramble for Africa. Everyone had already taken all the good bits. Italy was picking through their leftovers. So when Britain offered them the Red Sea port of Massawa, they took it, no questions asked. In 1885, Italian troops occupied Massawa and founded the colony of Eritrea, which they hoped would be the seat of an Italian empire in Africa. The Italian nationalist newspaper, Il Dirito, described the imperialist mood. Italy must be ready 
The year 1885 will decide her fate as a great power. It is necessary to feel the responsibility of the new era to become again strong men afraid of nothing with the sacred love of the fatherland of all Italy in our hearts. Johannes IV was not thrilled that a dangerous new enemy had just appeared on his coastline. He was even less thrilled when the Italians started pushing inland, seizing more and more Ethiopian territory. When they crossed the border into Tigray, Johannes' general Ras Alula responded. In January 1887, Ras Alula attacked the Italian fortress at Sahati. But this was a battle that played to European strengths. The Italians fought from a strong defensive position and slaughtered Alula's men with rifle and cannon fire. Hundreds of Ethiopians died at the cost of four Italian wounded. But Ras Alula had his revenge. On January 26, 1887, he caught an Italian force in the open at the Battle of Dogali. It took 14 to 1 numerical superiority and staggering casualties, but the Ethiopians annihilated the Italians. The Battle of Dogali was a massive blow to Italian pride and a big morale boost for the Ethiopians. There were massive public protests and waves of demonstrations back in Italy, with an entire square of Rome being dedicated to the martyrs of Dogali. Prime Minister Crispy Pig swore that Italy would have its revenge on the savages. He complained to his ally, German Chancellor Otto von Bismarck. We cannot stay inactive when the name of Italy is besmirched. Bismarck is supposed to have replied that Crispy's nation had a big appetite, but poor teeth, which very few people can deliver a burn like Otto von Bismarck. The Italians turned to the usual trick, divide and conquer. They contacted Menelik, king of Shawa, offering to give him weapons if he helped them overthrow Johannes. Basically the same deal that the British had offered Johannes, so you might see this as karma. Menelik accepted the Italian deal, but wasn't ready to move against Johannes yet. But that would change very soon. Johannes IV led a massive army towards Eritrea after Dogali, hoping to drive the Italians out of Africa entirely. But then he got news that the Mahdists had invaded his western borderlands. So Johannes had to call off the counteroffensive against the Italians and march west to defend Ethiopia from the Sudanese. The two armies collided in the massive Battle of Galabat on March 9th, 1889. It was a bloodbath, with thousands falling on both sides. The Ethiopians were winning, right up until a bullet knocked Emperor Johannes from the saddle and his troops fled. The Mahdist captured the Emperor's body and stuck his head on a pike outside their capital of Khartoum. Johannes's death left Ethiopia leaderless and divided, just as the Europeans were hammering at the gates of his ancient Christian kingdom. Anyone watching could predict what would happen next. Dagali was another temporary victory. The Europeans would be back, and the Ethiopians, torn by a succession crisis, would fail to unify against the threat. They might put up a fight, but defeat was inevitable. The Europeans always won in the end. It was the white man's destiny to rule every inch of the earth. But in less than a decade, that narrative would unravel, and that illusion would shatter at the hands of Menelik II, the last king of Africa.
Johannes IV's death on March 10, 1889 seemed to seal Ethiopia's fate. The Italians predicted that the empire would collapse into civil war to Italy's benefit. Italian General Antonio Baldissera was ready to divide and conquer. He said, No action should be taken by the Italian colonial forces until the strength of the conflicting parties in northern Ethiopia was entirely exhausted. Italy's like, that's right, keep fighting, wear each other out, then we step in and really join the scramble for Africa. The throne of Ethiopia was contested. In this corner, we have Ross Mengesha. Ross, I keep saying Ross this, Ross that. Ross is a title. Ross is a title like prince or lord. Uh, Ross Mengesha was Johannes' illegitimate son and chosen successor. And he had the support of Johannes' great general, Rasalula, who had defeated the Italians at Dogali. Both men were from the province of Tigray. Tigray was the historic Ethiopian power center. It held the old imperial capital of Aksum. It also bordered the new Italian colony of Eritrea. So it's like right on the new Italian colony. It, it is the frontier zone. But Rasmin Geisha's and Tigray's dominance had a challenger in the southern highlands. In this corner, we have Menelik, the king of Shawa. Menelik didn't look like much. He was in his 40s, but he seemed older than his years, with a craggy face marked by smallpox scars and framed by a short beard. His eyes were full of intelligence and warmth, but he gave an air of authority. One of his trademarks was a wide-brimmed European-style hat, which looked really weird, like this big, almost flat-brimmed hat over, this, over his robes and his silk imperial cape. His quiet friendliness caused many people to underestimate him. But Menelik was one of the great political chess masters of the 19th century. He was cautious, careful, and patient by nature. Ambitious, but never reckless. The kind of guy who's always waiting for his enemies to make a mistake. Menelik was a consummate pragmatist. Not a demon, not an angel. He just did whatever it took to advance his cause and Ethiopia's cause. In his masterful wielding of diplomacy and force, what you might call realpolitik, he resembled no one more than Otto von Bismarck. Basically, Menelik was the kind of guy that, according to Europeans, wasn't supposed to exist in Africa. Africans weren't supposed to be this smart. People like Menelik weren't supposed to know the game. Then there was his empress. Tetu Betul was a stunning woman with a regal face, cornrowed hair tied in a ponytail, and a light complexion. She did have a fairly large gap between her front teeth, one of her distinctive features whenever she's portrayed in art or film. Tetu was a political force in her own right. She owned lots of land and had lots of connections in the Northern Highlands, and she had her own personal army. She was vain. She always rode outside beneath her royal red umbrella, and she chose her ladies-in-waiting for their darker skin to make her lighter skin stand out. Both she and Menelik had been married before. This was like her fourth marriage and his third marriage. This was not their first rodeo, and theirs was a political marriage. She married the rising star of Ethiopian politics. He married a smart, wealthy woman with political influence and resources in the north. But their relationship was genuine. Emperor and Empress loved and most importantly respected each other. And Tetu was the yin to Menelik's yang. They complemented each other. She was fire and he was ice. 
Tetu was fiery, passionate, and principled. When Menelik counseled patience, Tetu counseled action. When Tetu was furious, Menelik was calm. When he was hesitant, she was determined. She hated Europeans. She never trusted them, said they smelled funny, though Menelik believed the Europeans had their uses. Some said that Menelik was loved, but Tetu was feared. Between them, they were the power couple that would guide Ethiopia into the modern age. Menelik and Tetu turned Shawa into a powerful state with a large standing army and a well-organized bureaucracy. Tetu chose the site for their new capital city, the small resort town of Addis Ababa. Soon Addis Ababa was thronging with merchants and artisans and European dignitaries. It was going from this tiny village into a large city. And, of course, Addis Ababa is still the capital of Ethiopia today. Menelik brought several Europeans into his service, including the Swiss engineer Alfred Ilk, who became his minister of state. Ilg not only oversaw construction and modernization projects, he also went abroad to buy the thing Menelik really wanted, weapons. Menelik was always trying to buy as many modern weapons as he could. He could not get enough modern rifles, modern artillery. It was his obsession. He even liked to learn how to take them apart and put them back together, as one of his big obsessions was figuring out how all his weapons worked. During his rule of Shawa, Menelik secured the important market city of Harar. Harar was the junction of all the roads leading to the coast, including all, all across the Horn of Africa, including the French colony of Djibouti. Harar was critical for Menelik to tap into the international arms trade through that French colony. And Menelik put his cousin in charge of Harar. Ras Makonan was elegant and cultured, urbane, sophisticated, and polite. He was a big fan of European culture and technology. It was widely believed that he was next in line for the throne. Menelik didn't have a living son. Ras Makonan was going to be like the guy who succeeded him. Tetu never liked Makonan. She didn't like his Europhilia and didn't trust his motives. Either way, thousands of modern European and American rifles, Remingtons, Enfields, uh, Mausers, flowed through Harar to Menelik's army. Menelik had a purpose for all these guns, and it wasn't to line them up in the yard for Instagram posts like your weird uncle. While Johannes fought the Egyptians and Italians in the north, Menelik launched wars of expansion to the east, south, and west. These were the Ethiopian lowlands, often occupied by Muslim states or smaller kingdoms, and Menelik snapped them up like a Pac-Man. He used religion as an excuse. Ethiopia had suffered at the hands of Muslims in the past, and he was returning the favor. In their own way, Menelik's conquests were just as brutal as anything the Europeans did. He was an empire builder, too. But he wasn't just trying to solidify his own power base, although he was. He was unifying Ethiopia for the struggle to come. He wanted to be on the throne, but he knew that the Europeans were his real enemy. Menelik, ever the patient, careful strategist, gathered his armies, expanded his territory, and waited for his chance. So in March 1889, when Menelik heard that Johannes had been killed in battle, he was ready to strike. He immediately declared himself Menelik II, Nagusa Nagast, King of Kings, the Lion of Judah, Emperor of Ethiopia. Of course, Ras Mengesha up in the north said the same thing. Now, both men claimed descent from Solomon. Both men claimed to be members of the Solomonic dynasty. 
They had to, whether it was true or not. You want to be Ethiopia's emperor, that's a prerequisite. Mengesha had his father's lineage, and the fact that Tigray was the historic power center of Ethiopia. But Menelik had a really strong army, a huge territorial base, and the support of the church. Finally, he had the Italians. The Italians had been cultivating Menelik for years. He was Johannes's rival, so of course they wanted him on their side. That way they could divide and conquer. Tetu hated the Italians, but Menelik was willing to do business. This was playing with fire. The Italians were obviously using Menelik's claim to the throne to try and weaken Ethiopia and pave their own way for conquest. They were using him. But Menelik was using them. If Italian support would help him secure the throne, he would allow them to believe he was their patsy until they were no longer useful. Let them think they're playing you while you play them. So on May 2nd, 1889, Menelik and Italian diplomat Pietro Antonelli signed the Treaty of Wuchale, a treaty of friendship between Italy and Ethiopia, like an alliance and a trade agreement. The treaty also redefined the boundary between Ethiopia and Eritrea. Get this, get this. Menelik gave away Ethiopian territory to the Italians, about half of Tigray, including the major city of Asmara. In return for this land, the Italians agreed to give Menelik a whole buttload of weapons, including thousands of modern rifles, and a whole buttload of money. Now, to Tigrayans, understandably, the Treaty of Uchale was a betrayal. Menelik was giving Ethiopian territory to the colonizers, a permanent giveaway in exchange for some weapons and money. Yes, Menelik was, as always, being pragmatic and ruthless. By giving half of Tigray to Italy, not only did he buy Italian support, he had broken up the only power base in Ethiopia that could rival his. He had undermined his enemies inside Ethiopia and bought himself some time in a single stroke. Menelik knew that Italy was the real threat, but by feeding them a little territory, he could buy time. Time to consolidate his rule, buy more weapons, and prepare for the inevitable falling out. Was it a cold, ruthless decision to give away Ethiopian land to the colonizer just to prepare to fight the colonizer? Oh yes, it was extremely ruthless. And it worked. Within a year, Menelik II was virtually unchallenged inside Ethiopia. Ras Mengesha and Ras Alula still defied his authority, but they had bigger problems. Italian troops were moving in to occupy the lands Menelik had signed away. Distracted by this threat, they weren't able to stop Menelik's ascension. The upshot is that divide and conquer hadn't worked. Menelik's takeover had been quick, virtually bloodless, and virtually complete. Ethiopia did not fall into civil war. Menelik's strategy had worked. The treaty had done everything he needed. But... The Treaty of Wuchale was written and signed in both Italian and Amharic, the main language of Ethiopia. But the two treaty versions were not the same. There was a difference between the two versions of this treaty in two different languages. Article 17 of the Amharic version said that Menelik could, if he wanted to, use the Italian government as his go-between with other European powers, like the like, it's given him an assist. Like, he's able to use the Italians on his side when he's talking to other European powers. 
but the Italian version said that Menelik had to communicate with other European powers through Italy. This was a crucial difference, a very crucial difference. The Amharic version said, hey bro, we'll talk to those guys for you if you want. The Italian version said, hey, you can't communicate with anyone except through us. This gave Italy control over Ethiopian diplomacy. In effect, it made them an Italian protectorate, a semi-official part of the Italian empire. The Italians claimed that these, this whole two-version shenanigan was a translation error. Ethiopians claimed it was an underhanded trick to gain control over their country. Historians debate this. Like, they're, they're like, was it really just a mess up? But if you ask me, oh yeah, the Italians were trying to be slick. They knew what they were doing. Colonizers did stuff like this a lot putting something secret in the treaty, or changing the words later, or getting the natives intoxicated before signing it, or something like that. The colonizers never bargained in good faith. The Italians had purposely tricked the Ethiopians into trying to sign away their country to become an Italian protectorate. Only a few months later, just, just to show, the Italians informed all the other European powers that Ethiopia was now their protectorate. They had marked their territory. When Menelik discovered this, he was gonna be pissed. But there's a very good question to ponder here. When exactly did Menelik find out? See, I have a conspiracy theory. Menelik knew about the two treaty versions from the beginning. He wanted them to believe they had tricked him so that he could reap the benefits of the treaty, and then later, when it wasn't useful anymore, he could say it was invalid. Not just that, he could use the treaty as evidence of Italian treachery to rally his people against the foreigners and unite them under his rule. So who's really tricking who here? See, right after the treaty was signed, Menelik sent a diplomatic mission to Italy. And who better to send than Ross McConan, the guy who loved everything European? Ross McConan traveled to Italy in 1889, and he awed the Europeans with his grace and composure. But it would have been really hard to ignore that the Italians treated him like a subject, an honored subject, but a subject, not the diplomat of an independent state. I'm pretty sure the Italians even used the word protectorate to McConan's face and he just smiled and nodded. McConan was smart. He spoke Italian. He would have picked up on this and reported it back to Manelik. But Manelik was like, shh, it's okay. It's okay. We'll deal with that later. So Manelik knew. He allowed the Italians to think they had fooled him and once again waited for his chance. See, what Menelik did was wait until he got all those weapons and money that Italy had promised him in the treaty. Then he blew things up. He tried to communicate with Queen Victoria and Kaiser Wilhelm, and he got responses back saying, yeah, sorry, Italy has told us they're, they're, you're their protectorate now, so talk to Italy and they'll talk to us. That's how it works now. Menelik was immediately and publicly and theatrically insulted. He made this clear in a letter to King Umberto of Italy. When I made that treaty of friendship with Italy, I said that because of friendship, our affairs in Europe might be carried on with the aid of the sovereign of Italy. But I have not made any treaty which obliges me to do so. That one independent power does not seek the aid of another to carry on its affairs, your majesty understands very well. Menelik also sent letters to the nations of Europe, informing them that, hey, 
Italy's lying to you. Ethiopia is not an Italian protectorate. My empire is independent and remains independent. Ethiopia, having existed for 1400 years as a Christian island surrounded by a sea of pagans, I do not intend to listen quietly when governments from distant lands say they will divide up Africa. I trust that God, who has protected Ethiopia until this day, will henceforth protect and increase her, and I have no fear that he will divide her and give her away to other nations. Of course, many Europeans refuse to acknowledge Ethiopian independence. Like, who cares if Italy violated every standard of diplomacy? Who cared if they broke every convention of contract law? It's not like Ethiopia is a real country. They're African. It's okay to double-cross them. We've all done it. That's just good imperialism. Europeans would always side with fellow Europeans over the savage Africans. Well, most of them. Menelik sent Alfred Ilg, his Swiss advisor, to run the diplomatic circuit and try to gin up support for Ethiopia's cause. And Ilg found a couple of countries willing to help. France, which was Italy's rival in Africa. Like, France wasn't, you know, big on African rights, but they hated Italy more. <laughs> and Russia, which was happy to help a fellow Orthodox Christian state against those dirty Catholics. Soon French artillery and Russian medical supplies and even Russian artillery experts were flowing from French-controlled Djibouti down through Harar to Menelik's capital at Addis Ababa. Menelik was playing European rivalries, European divisions, for his own benefit. Divide and conquer, huh? Two can play that game. Italy decided to punish their wayward protectorate by convincing the other European powers to embargo arms sales to Ethiopia. So Menelik decided, yeah, this treaty's run its course, it's time to officially cancel this thing. He summoned the Italian diplomat Pietro Antonelli and told him that he was abrogating the Treaty of Wuchale. Like, hey dude, you tried to trick me, this treaty is invalid, I will no longer abide by it. Antonelli chastised Menelik, telling him, Listen, you're our subject now. You have to do what we say. You try to go back on this treaty, we're coming for you. Italy could not allow Ethiopia to cancel the treaty with her dignity intact. The argument continued until Empress Tetu had enough. She rose and said, We have made known to the powers that the said article, as it is written in our language, has another meaning. You wish to have Ethiopia represented before the other powers as if it is your protectorate, but that will never be. Antonelli spluttered that this would mean war. Tetu laughed. No one here is afraid of your threats. We will slaughter those who come to invade us. There is no Ethiopian who will not plant his feet in the sand and face death to save his country. To shed one's blood and lose one's life for the motherland is not death, it is an honor. Do not even waste your time here. Go on with your war. We will await you eagerly. Antonelli stormed out of the chamber. Menelik probably looked at Tetu and said, and that is why I married you. Either way, things were broken off. Menelik was hostile to Italy now, and everybody knew it. Prime Minister Crispy decided that if Menelik was going rogue, it was time to play some more divide and conquer. The Italians reached out to Ras Mengesha, Menelik's rival, for his assistance in overthrowing Menelik. They're playing the same game over and over. 
but you can only play Divide and Conquer for so long before people start to figure your tricks out. Mengesha was starting to figure it out. See, one of Crispy's pet projects in Eritrea was to send Italian peasant families to settle in the area, to build a settler state in Africa. Maybe they could, I don't know, plant some rice. It could be rice de crispy. I'm sorry, that was a stretch. So these Italian colonists were settling in Mengesha's home territory. He saw this and was like, oh, oh, okay. He was starting to realize what working with the Italians would mean. And again, Menelik's a genius. He gave the Italians half of Tigray, which would ensure Mengesha's hostility against them. Because they occupied his land, any new war of conquest would take the rest of it. Mengesha had no choice but to side with Menelik or lose any sort of freedom whatsoever. So on June 2nd, 1894, Ross Mengesha and Ross Alula both arrived at Menelik's court. The two Ethiopian princes carried heavy stones, a token of submission, in front of the Negusa Nagast. They pledged their support in the support of Tigray to Menelik II. He might have been their enemy before, but now he was the only one who could save them. Divide and conquer had failed. If Italy wanted its share in the scramble for Africa, they would have to fight for it. And Prime Minister Crispy was ready to snap, crackle, and pop. So our crispy, crunchy friend sent a new general to take command of the Italian colonial forces, General Oreste Baratieri. Baratieri was stout, with a big head and a big mustache, and tiny glasses for his poor eyesight. He, he has really little bitty glasses, they're kind of funny. He was famous as an Italian patriot and a well-known soldier, a true blue imperialist, someone who believed that Africans would inevitably submit to Europeans. In late 1894, now that relations had full and well broke down between Ethiopia and Italy, Ross Mengesha and Ras Alula supported the rebellion inside Italian Eritrea, and Baratieri reacted. He led 4,000 troops into the district, crushed the rebellion, then marched across the Ethiopian border to fight the Tigrayans. Mengesha and Alula rallied their forces to fight him. For all intents and purposes, the Italo-Ethiopian War had begun. On January 13, 1895, at the Battle of Coatit, Baratieri's Italians smashed Mengesha's army. Even though Baratieri only had about 4,000 men and Mengesha had almost 20,000, Italian artillery shattered the Tigrayan ranks. Disciplined bayonet charges drove them back, and Baratieri's rapid pursuit broke up Mengesha's army. The Ethiopians were shattered, and Mengesha fled south to ask Menelik for help. One thing I gotta point out here, most of Baratieri's troops in this battle were not Italians, they were Eritreans. Like many European powers, the Italians recruited African troops from the area, and they called them Ascaris, just like Germans in East Africa during World War I, see episode 41. The Eritrean Ascaris were led by Italian officers, armed with Italian rifles, trained to Italian standards. They were effective in combat, inheriting most of the European tactics and firepower advantages. The Eritrean Ascaris made up about half of Italy's colonial army, and they would make up about a third of the troops that fought in the Battle of Adwa. After his victories over the Tigrayans, 
Bartieri returned to Rome to ask the government to support a conquest of Ethiopia. Like, we're going in there and taking over everything. He received a standing ovation from the Italian parliament and was acclaimed as Italy's greatest soldier, the avenger of Dogali, the future conqueror of Africa. In his speech to the parliament, Bartieri declared, Give me ten million lire and I will haul Menelik to Rome in chains. They gave him 13 million. Crispy told Bartieri, go back to Ethiopia, crush this savage, defeat the last king of Africa, and you will restore to Italy the military glory of Rome. In September 1895, Bartieri returned to Eritrea to finish what he had started. Victory would be easy. Come on, they're Africans. They're a bunch of spear chuckers. Menelik can't raise that many soldiers. Even if he does, he can't supply them. Even if he can, one of his generals will betray him. Even if they don't, he'll do the same thing all the savages do and smash himself against our prepared defenses. It's the same story. The Europeans always win in the end. Crispy Bartieri and the Italians were running on a healthy dose of hubris. One big thing about warfare... It is never wise to base your plans on the enemy's weakness instead of your own strength. So when Baratieri led his army south into Ethiopian territory in October 1895, he had no idea that Menelik was leading his army north. On September 17, 1895, war drums beat in Addis Ababa. Menelik rode through the streets, his floppy hat out of place above his fine robes, Tetu riding behind him with her face covered, wielding her red umbrella. The Orthodox priests displayed processional crosses under striped canopies. Tens of thousands of men had gathered in the tents outside the capital. The priests chanted as Menelik summoned Ethiopia to a holy war. An enemy has come across the sea. He has broken through our frontiers in order to destroy our fatherland and our faith. He undermines our territories and our people like a mole. Enough! With the help of God, I will defend the inheritance of my forefathers and drive back the invader by force of arms. Let every man who has sufficient strength accompany me, and he who has not, let him pray for us. All across the empire, the princes summoned their people to war. The orthodox clergy called the faithful to arms. Men put aside their farming tools, were given rifles and ammunition, and organized into provincial regiments. The organization of Menelik's army would be feudal, almost medieval. Each local ruler, each local ras or prince, brought his or her own levies to the great muster. Tetu brought her own levies, almost 10,000 of her own men. The vast majority weren't conscripts. They were volunteers who just heard the call and answered it, eager to defend their country. Even Muslims answered the call, including the fearsome Oromo cavalry of the Somali desert. Menelik appealed to his Muslim subjects' common African heritage to defeat the European invader. I am black, and you are black. Let us unite to hunt our common enemy. On October 11th, 1895, Menelik's enormous army began its march north. The Ethiopian army was a strange fusion of medieval and modern. Many warriors wore lion's mane headdresses, carried buffalo hide shields, swords, and spears. Menelik's honor guard was armed with chainmail, javelins, and longswords, like something out of an actual medieval crusade. But all these soldiers also carried modern rifles, 
Remingtons, or Enfields, or Mausers. Manelik had a sophisticated artillery train, including state-of-the-art French Hotchkiss guns, and his gunners were advised by Russian artillery experts. Many of the weapons the Ethiopians carried were more modern than those of their Italian opponents. You have this repeating bolt-action rifle, you also have a sword at your side. When Manelik's full army assembled, he had 70,000 fighting men. But not just men. Camp followers of all kinds, women and children and support personnel, baking bread and hauling supplies and driving livestock. With the camp followers, Manelik's force totaled almost 120,000. Europeans assumed that an army of this size was impossible for Africans to organize and supply, and yeah, this is an enormous logistic challenge. But Manelik had planned for this. He had had his vassals stockpile food supplies along his line of march. He ordered some units to guard the capital and his borders, because they were beyond his logistic capacity to support. Like, somebody comes to the capital, Manelik's like, hey, we don't have enough food for you guys, why don't you go defend the western borderland, that's a good service too. Manelik's careful planning overcame the iron hand of logistics, allowing him to project a massive army in the defense of Ethiopia. The army's organization was surprisingly sophisticated. Every day, Manelik's and Tetu's tents were pitched at the center of the camp. Every day, the camp was laid out in a perfect model. The camp followers were divided up by province, and each was given a certain task. The Gindabel unit managed the food supplies and tents. The Chan and Kwame organized the mule trains. The Desta carried axes and saws to prepare the camp. The Satin Chan unit carried ammunition. The Orthodox priests sang and waved their crosses to beseech the blessing of God. This was more than an army. It was an Ethiopian tradition called the Zemecha, which literally means campaign, but actually means more. It was a national call to arms, a show of courage, faith, patriotism, and unity from all corners of the empire. And it was a triumph for Menelik II, who could show both his own people and the enemy that Ethiopia was united, undivided, unconquered. Ethiopian songwriters were already composing verses. Oh wonder, they came to conquer Abyssinia, crossing the sea on a boat. You, base city of Rome, Menelik, savior of the world, will not even leave one of your seed to bear your name. As the Ethiopians marched north, the Europeans were consuming Africa. The British had just overthrown the kingdom of Ashanti. The Germans were fencing off Namibia and preparing for genocide. The Belgians were conquering the last unseen corners of the African interior. The French were overwhelming Samori Touré in Ghana. Soon Ethiopia would be the only ones left. They were fighting for more than their independence. They were fighting for the future of a continent. They marched north, led by Emperor Menelik II and Empress Tetu Begal, the last king and queen of Africa. General Oreste Bartieri was feeling pretty good in December 1895. 
His forces had advanced deep into Ethiopian territory, and there was no sign of resistance. There were rumors that Menelik's army was suffering from desertion, that it was falling apart from lack of supplies, that several of the princes had rebelled and were causing a civil war. Baratiri believed that even if these things weren't true, Menelik could never bring more than 30,000 men across northern Ethiopia, and the Italians could deal with them easily. But Menelik had well over 70,000 well-armed, highly motivated men. He was facing zero rebellions, and the Italians were about to receive a rude awakening. Their first hint was at Amba Alage. This was a high granite mesa towering above the plains of Tigray, the, the farthest Italian outpost, held by 2,000 Eritrean Ascaris, led by Italian Major Pietro Toselli. Toselli was overconfident, convinced that his Italian-led Ascaris would easily beat these barbarian Ethiopians. What, they probably just have a bunch of spears and stuff. Menelik had entrusted the vanguard of his army to his cousin Ras Makonin, mainly because he was cultured, sophisticated, and had experience with the Italians, so he could handle any diplomacy. But there was a second reason. Empress Tetu didn't trust Makonin. She thought he was too friendly with the Europeans. Menelik agreed that Makonin would lead the advance guard, initiate combat with the Italians, and prove his loyalty. So it was Makonin that encountered Major Toselli's force on December 6th, 1895. Toselli had to have just about crapped himself when he looked up the next day and saw like 30,000 men assembling below Amba Elage. He sent messages back to Baratiri like, uh, hey, the Ethiopians are here. There's a lot of them. Send reinforcements. But reinforcements would not arrive in time. The next day, December 7th, 1895, Makonan's men attacked the Mesa. And now let's talk a little bit about Ethiopian tactics. We've talked about how European superiority and firepower and tactics had enabled them to defeat Africans in battle, even forces many times their size, especially from defensive positions. But the Ethiopians had been fighting European-style armies for decades, and they had developed tactical doctrines that combined traditional forms of warfare with modern weaponry, tactics specifically developed to defeat European-style armies. Confronted with the firepower and close-discipline formations of the Europeans, Ethiopians utilized mass and maneuver. Their units flowed like water around enemy flanks and through blind spots, enveloping and isolating smaller units with their greater numbers. Ethiopian riflemen moved very fast, almost at a jog, and they were very accurate marksmen. They were barefoot, but they moved faster that way. They used fire and movement tactics, with a few men rushing forward while the others laid down covering fire. Their artillery and snipers targeted enemy officers and artillery crews, suppressing the enemy and sowing confusion in their ranks. The Ethiopians would infiltrate closer and closer. Then, once the enemy was suppressed and the artillery was silenced, the spearmen and swordsmen would charge into melee and break the enemy formation. Like, they get close enough, they suppress them with fire, then when the moment is right, they draw their swords and charge in. Then the cavalry would follow up in pursuit. The doctrine even had a name, Athena, or some people have called it Barefoot Blitzkrieg. The Ethiopians had developed this doctrine over the last few decades, in victory and in defeat, and knowledge of its, you know, fundamentals had spread across the country. 
This was a fusion of traditional Ethiopian tactics with its large-scale armies and encirclement tactics and modern European-style weaponry, the new accurate rifles and artillery. And this doctrine did its job at Amba Alage. Makonan spread his force wide and sent his riflemen scampering up the slopes of the Mesa. First, he hit Toseli's left flank. Toseli sent reinforcements, just for Makonan's second attack to hit him from the right. Toseli tried to order a retreat, but found his line of escape blocked by a third force coming in behind him. By now, more of Menelik's army had arrived, including Ras Mengesha's men, and they rushed to join the fight and take part in the glory. Toseli was killed, and his force was virtually annihilated. 1,500 Askaris died at Amba Alage. Only a handful escaped. The Ethiopians only suffered a few hundred casualties. Ras Makonan found Major Toseli's body and saw that it received an honorable burial. Makonan's vanguard continued north. Next up was the fortress of Mekele, commanded by Colonel Giuseppe Galliano, with 1,100 Ascaris and 200 Italian soldiers. Makonan surrounded the fortress and sent a message to Galliano. How are you? I am well, thanks be to God. Are your soldiers well? Mine are very well. In the name of my emperor, I pray you leave this land, otherwise I will be forced to make war. It pains me to have to shed the blood of Christians. Please leave with your soldiers. Your friend, Marconan. Galliano replied, How are you? I am well, thanks be to God. My soldiers are very well, as I hope yours are too. My king has ordered me to remain here, and I will not move. Do what you have to do. I assure you that I have fine rifles and very fine cannon. Your friend, Galliano. Maconan didn't want to attack the fortress of Michele. This was the kind of battle that Africans needed to avoid, don't attack the Europeans when they're in a strong defensive position. But then Menelik arrived on January 7th, and he was frustrated that Makonan hadn't already taken the fortress. Makonan's hesitation made some Ethiopian leaders suspicious. There were even rumors of treason, like Makonan didn't want to attack his Italian friends. Uh, Tetu definitely helped spread these rumors. So Menelik ordered Makonan to make the assault. The outcome was predictable. The Ethiopian artillery opened fire, their quick-firing French Hotchkiss guns laying accurate rounds into the fortress. The Ethiopian gunners worked their pieces so professionally that Colonel Galliano refused to believe they weren't Europeans. But the small shells couldn't penetrate the fortress walls. So Makonan had to send in the infantry. For three days, the Ethiopians tried over and over to storm the walls, but they were cut down by rifle and artillery blasts. When 600 of his men died in the last attack on the 11th, Makonan tried to run forward and join them, only for Rasa Lula to pull him back. Ethiopian families wailed in grief for their dead that night as Menelik and Makonan faced each other in the tent, both their eyes filling with tears. It was the darkest hour of the war for Ethiopia. They had suffered a bloody defeat, and the high command was plagued by mistrust. Maybe infighting would doom their cause, like it had so many other African nations. But instead, Menelik stood, hugged Makonan tightly, and said, This is my faithful subject. It was an apology for doubting him. No one would question Makonan's loyalty again. It was Empress Tetu who realized that Mekele's water supply flowed in from outside the walls, which is a pretty dumb thing to do with your fortress, and she sent her troops to block off the local springs. 
So by January 21st, dehydration forced the Italians to surrender. Menelik allowed them to lay down their weapons and leave unharmed. This was a calculated move. Menelik was demonstrating his civilized nature to the outside world for good PR. And Menelik also graciously offered to escort the Italian prisoners north with his whole army, using them as shields against Italian counterattacks as he marched towards the Eritrean border. Italy was shocked by Amba Alage and Michele, two bitter defeats at the hands of savages. Crispy's popularity was sinking, his government was in danger of collapse. These were humiliating setbacks that had to be undone. Crispy sent a message to Baratieri. My colleagues and I are sending you two additional brigades and everything that you have asked for. Remember that Amba Alage and Michele were two military failures, however glorious, and that the honor of Italy and that of the monarchy are in your hands. So Baratieri was under political pressure to win something for Italy. Baratieri assembled his main army of 18,000 men at the fortress of Adigrat, close to the border with Eritrea. He wanted Medelic to attack him. It would be the exact kind of battle that the Europeans were best at, defending a strong position with their superior firepower and discipline. Baratieri also had plenty of supplies, including water supplies this time, so they couldn't pull any of those shenanigans again. But Menelik was too smart for this. Michele had been a bloody reminder not to attack European fortifications. So instead of attacking Baratieri's position and giving the Italians the battle they wanted, Menelik marched to the west, bypassing the fortress, heading for the city of Adwa. Once he got there, Menelik sent Baratieri a message, offering to negotiate a peace deal. Menelik's maneuver did three big things. First, it was a turning movement. By bypassing Baratieri's position, he forced him to abandon it, and all the land Italy had conquered in the last year. Second, it placed him within striking distance of Eritrea, threatening the Italian colony. Finally, it forced Baratieri to act. He could not accept a peace deal now. If the war ended here after two Ethiopian victories and Italy's abandonment of its recent conquests, Ethiopia had won. Italy would be utterly humiliated. The scramble for Africa had always been about prestige, national glory, national honor, and as things stood, Italy's prestige was in the sewer. They needed to fix this. Bartieri sent a response to Menelik's peace offer. He demanded that Ethiopia not only submit to the Italian version of the Treaty of Wuchale, but hand over a bunch more territory, including all of Tigray. The sheer audacity of this demand infuriated everyone in the Ethiopian court, especially the Tigrayans, Mengesha and Alula. Like, you're losing the war. Who are you to be making demands at this point? Italian arrogance made Ethiopians more united, more determined, the exact opposite of divide and conquer. Bartieri's army followed Menelik to a new position at Soria, about 12 miles away from the Ethiopian position at Adwa. Between them were the craggy open hills of the Ethiopian highlands, small mountains and deep valleys and scrub brush. The two armies spent February 1896 in a Mexican standoff, staring each other down, Bartieri with his spyglass, Menelik with his binoculars, each daring the other to make a move. So these two armies are just sitting there staring each other down, waiting. Neither side really wanted to attack. 
Menelik knew the danger of attacking Italian defensive positions. He wasn't about that life. And Baratieri was extremely outnumbered. He had about 18,000 men versus Menelik's 70,000 combat troops. He never could have dreamed that Menelik would raise an army this large, let alone supply this army over the hundreds of miles from Addis Ababa, but here they were. But the standoff couldn't last forever, for one big reason, the iron hand of logistics. Menelik's huge army could only stay put for so long before it picked the area clean and had to move on. He'd brought this huge army, supplying it was a big challenge, and he couldn't just sit still. And Baratieri's supply line back to Eritrea was under attack by Ethiopian guerrillas and raiding parties. So as the days ticked by, both armies were running out of supplies. This, as much as anything, would force them into battle. But who would strike first? Well, this is why the campaign before the battle is so important. Menelik was winning. He didn't need a battle. By humiliating the Italians at Amba Alage and Michele, then forcing them to withdraw from their everything they'd occupied, he had accomplished his objectives. He The war had already done everything he needed it to do. Menelik didn't need to fight a battle. But the Italians needed a battle. They needed to defeat Menelik's army to undo the recent defeats and to save face and preserve their national and racial honor. Crispy was screaming down the telephone lines at Baratieri for this purpose. Why haven't you attacked yet? What are you waiting for? You said you would bring Menelik back in a cage. They're just Africans for God's sake. They're savages, savages, barely even human. Baratieri was like, you don't understand. There is a great disproportion in the size of our forces. The enemy is shrewd, and his organization has greatly improved since 1888, obliging us to exercise maximum prudence. There was also the state of the Italian army. Most of the white Italian troops, which were about two-thirds of the army at this point, were poorly motivated conscripts with very little training. Italy was the only European country to use conscripts in the scramble for Africa. Lots of their rifles and artillery were outdated, literally older than the Ethiopian weapons, and their training was not great. The best trained troops were, ironically, their black soldiers, the Ascaris. The equipment was trash, their boots were apparently especially bad, literally rotting off their feet. Baratieri had very little confidence in his own soldiers. But Crispy didn't care. He was extra crispy now. This is a military-wasting disease, not a war. Small skirmishes in which we always find ourselves facing the enemy with inferior numbers. A waste of heroism without success. We are ready for any sacrifice to save the honor of the army and the prestige of the monarchy. Finally, Crispy had had enough. He told Baratieri, if you won't fight, I'll find someone who can. You're fired. Your replacement is on the way. So on the night of February 29, 1896, Baratieri met with the generals leading his four brigades, Generals Albertone, Dabormida, Aramandi, and Elena. He told them that their supplies would only last five more days. After that, they would have to retreat. What do you guys think we should do? All four generals responded, attack. The Italian soldiers were losing their morale. A retreat would kill their spirits and complete Italy's humiliation. Generals Matteo Albertone and Vittorio da Bormida really wanted to fight. They insisted that a good attack would make short work of the primitives, that all this hesitation and cowering was the real problem. 
Dabormida said, Italy would prefer the loss of two or three thousand men to a dishonorable retreat. So Baratieri, who really didn't want to attack, bowed to political pressure, the unanimous opinion of his subordinates, and the fact that he wanted to keep his job and not have his career ruined. He would attack at first light on March 1st, 1896. The Battle of Adowa would be fought in the mountainous rocky vistas of the Ethiopian highlands. Big wadis and ravines broke the terrain, and craggy peaks emerged from the scrub brush and brown sandy soil. The Ethiopian and Italian armies were separated by three mountain peaks, clearly visible for miles around. Baratieri's plan was simple, though of course, as we'll see, as Clausewitz said, the simple things can be very difficult. The army would advance in three columns, with Dabormida's brigade to the north, Aramandi's and Elena's brigades in the center, and Albertone's brigade to the south. They would march by night, get within a few miles of the Ethiopian lines, and dig in along the mountain passes between the three peaks. When the sun rose and Manelik saw the Italians challenging him to battle, he would have to fight or lose face. This plan would utilize all the European advantages. Defensive positions, clear fields of fire, tight formations, high ground, the works. But that didn't happen. Yeah, that didn't happen. And my military listeners will figure out why they didn't happen when I say these words. <laughs> Night land navigation. The Italian march started at 9.45 p.m. on February 29th, and they had to cover 10 miles in the darkness to get to their positions. There was very little time to plan the march. Most of the soldiers didn't know the overall plan or where they were going. They were just told, hey, we're marching that way. They didn't even know they were supposed to be attacking half the time. So the units got mixed up in the darkness. They got in each other's way. They got turned around. No one knew what was going on. General Albertone, leading a brigade of mostly Ascaris, was supposed to take position at a pass called the Kidani Meret. So his lead unit, the 1st Native Battalion under Major Domenico Torito, arrived at the Kidani Meret. They marched their 10 miles by 3.30 a.m. General Albertone came riding up like, hey, why'd you stop? Torito was like, look, we're here. Albertone said, nope, wrong place. We got to keep going. Torito was like, boss, look, right here on the map. This is Kadane Meret. And this is where General Albertone fails night land navigation. Every officer, candidate, or cadet in the U.S. Army has to pass night land navigation. They have to be able to find points on a map and get there at night. It is one of the most basic duties of an officer. Why is this important? This is why. General Albertone had plotted his points wrong. He misread the map, failed to tell one mountain from another in the dark, and was too arrogant or too stupid to check with his superiors. He insisted that Kidane Moret was four miles farther west. When Major Torito was like, boss, we are where we're supposed to be, look, right here, Albertone accused him of cowardice. And in the very uh, proud, touchy Italian military culture of the time, that was just how you won an argument. This is basically just that scene from episode one of Band of Brothers, too. <laughs> so the Albertone Brigade kept marching miles past the pre-planned Italian position. The sun was just rising when Major Torito's battalion stumbled right into the Ethiopian camp. A rifle shot sounded, then another one, then 20, then a thousand. It was 6 a.m. on March 1st, 1896, and the Battle of Adwa had begun. 
Emperor Manelik's camp swarmed like a beehive as men charged out of their tents, grabbed their rifles, and raced for the front lines. Albertone's 4,000-man brigade was four miles ahead of friendly lines, about to face the full weight of the Ethiopian army alone. General Bartieri arrived at 6.30 a.m. He barely had time to wonder, hey, uh, where's Albertone's brigade? It's supposed to be right here, when he heard a bunch of shooting start to the west. Imagine him just facepalming, oh my god, you gotta be kidding me. The plan was shot. One Italian soldier remembered hearing the shooting begin. Some of us received the first sounds of gunfire that morning with incredulous chuckles, others with a moral effect that was clearly visible. Hesitation, uncertainty, fear. Italian morale was low. Soon Bartieri received a message from Albertone. At Cadane Moret Pass, the 1st Battalion remains seriously engaged. I have all remaining troops in position behind them. I seek to disengage the 1st Battalion. Large enemy force before me. Reinforcements would be welcome. 815, General Albertone. Baratieri couldn't actually see Albertone's brigade from his position. He didn't know where exactly they were. He, he wasn't at the Cadane Moret Pass, as we've been over. And this message did not convey the real urgency of the situation. By the time the message arrived, the 1st Battalion was already destroyed, Major Torito was already dead, and Albertone's brigade was about to be overrun. So Baratieri ordered General Dabornmida, commanding the right flank brigade, to march southwest, go find and rescue Albertone. But for some reason, Dabormida did not do this. Dabormida failed day land navigation. He misheard the instructions, mistook one road for another, and was too arrogant or too stupid to correct his mistake. Dabormida marched his brigade to the northwest in the opposite direction from Albertone's brigade, down into a valley called the Mariam Shavitu. Soon he was lost, isolated, miles from the main army, scratching his head looking at the map like, where, where are we? So Baratieri's army was split into three units that didn't know their own locations, let alone each other's locations, fighting their own separate battles. Combined and in a strong defensive position, they might have stood a chance. Split up in mountainous terrain, unable to support each other, they were in serious danger. The Italians had played divide and conquer on themselves. Emperor Menelik and Empress Tetu were praying that morning when news arrived of the Italian attack. The royal couple finished their prayers before emerging from their tents, girded for battle. Drums beat, trumpets blared, and the Orthodox clergy of the Tewahedo Church sang praises to the Exia Baher, the Lord of Hosts. And my sources differ on this point, I've heard several different versions of this. The clergy of Aksum, the capital of ancient Ethiopia, may have brought what they said was the literal Ark of the Covenant to this battle. Well, they, like I said, they said it was the Ark. They definitely brought the sacred relics of St. George, Ethiopia's patron and defender. The Negusa Negas, the Lion of Judah, beseeched the god that had protected Ethiopia for 15 centuries to come to her aid once more. What's funny is that Menelik's supplies were almost gone. A few more days and he would have had to retreat. But the, now the Italians had given him what he wanted a decisive battle in the open where his superior numbers could tell. He took position on a hill on horseback and scanned the horizon to gain a sense of the battle. The Battle of Adwa was joined. 
If Ethiopia lost, Menelik's authority would be shattered, the empire would collapse, and Italy would swoop in like a vulture. The last truly independent African state would vanish from the map. The European conquest of a continent would be complete, and maybe the West really would rule the world forever. Whether anyone knew it or not, these were the stakes. This was already going to be one of the decisive battles of history, and its outcome rested on the shoulders of the last king of Africa. Menelik had always been a patient man. He waited for his moment, and he never hesitated to seize it. He had the measure of his foe, knew their strengths and weaknesses, knew that one of a commander's greatest talents is recognizing when your opponent makes a mistake and strike. Menelik looked across the hills, waiting for his moment. Then it came. Across the sandy crags, miles away, Menelik spotted the column of Italian troops turning north and marching down into the valley of the Mariam Shavitu. This was Dabor Mita's brigade, marching away from the rest of the Italian army into a cul-de-sac. When Menelik saw this, he must have smiled. The Italians had made a serious mistake, and he wasn't going to give them the chance to fix it. He and his nation had prayed, and God had answered. Menelik seized his opportunity. He ordered his reserves, 15,000 infantry under Ross Maconan and Ross Mangesha, to charge into the gap between Albertones and Dabormida's brigades. The two princes led their men forward, placing themselves between the three isolated portions of the Italian army. Then they began the process of encirclement. This was the decisive moment of one of history's decisive battles. It was 9.30 a.m., and even though the fighting wouldn't be over until the end of the day, Menelik II had already won the Battle of Atwa. It was the morning of March 1st, 1896, and the Battle of Adwa raged. The rocky hills of the Ethiopian highlands rang with gunshots, rumbled with artillery, all underlain by thousands of voices cheering or screaming or singing. There were places you couldn't see anything, then climb on a hill and see Ethiopian riflemen swarming into a gully, Italian formations firing volleys, or squadrons of Oromo cavalry thundering down the hillside. Menelik's attack into the Italian center had isolated the three components of Baratieri's army, each of which was now fighting for its life. Albertone's brigade had blundered into the Ethiopian camp that morning like a dog running into a hornet's nest. His men were Eritrean Ascaris, African troops led by Italian officers and NCOs. Albertone deployed his battalions and four batteries of mountain artillery on a hillside with clear fields of fire. The Ethiopians, including Menelik's Imperial Guard, came charging in furiously, but they were bunched up, easy targets for the Italian artillery. Their first attack was repulsed, as 14 Italian guns poured shell after shell of high explosive into their ranks. Empress Tetu showed up to cheer the men on, within range of the Italian guns. 
It sounds like she was fighting a with a revolver in hand. Most Adwa battle paintings depict Tetu shooting her revolver from beneath her red umbrella. When she saw them flinch, Tetu shouted, What is going on? Courage! Victory is ours! Other Ethiopian women came to join her, and Tetu organized them to fetch water and ammunition. Ethiopian women were omnipresent throughout the day, carrying casualties, bringing supplies, tending the wounded, fetching water for hot men just after hours of combat. This was their battle, too. Albertone's brigade clung to the hillside, African fighting African under different flags. But the Afana, the barefoot blitzkrieg that was the Ethiopian tactical doctrine, did the trick. As infantry attacks pinned Albertone's brigade down, the Ethiopians brought up their artillery, the quick-firing French Hotchkiss guns. Menelik arrived to motivate his gunners, and Tetu directed the fire of five pieces. The Ethiopian gunners silenced the Italian artillery, clearing the way for the flanking maneuver. Ras Makonen led his forces around Albertone's right, and Tetu, Tekle Haimanot, and Ragshum Gengal, several other princes, led theirs around the left. Soon sheets of fire were shredding the Ascaris from three sides, and the Ethiopians crept closer and closer with their swords. Albertone was in trouble. It was at about this point that he sent that message back to Baratieri asking for help, and Baratieri sent Dabormida's brigade, which promptly marched in the wrong direction. By 10 a.m., the Ethiopian swordsmen were charging and slaughtering the artillery crews. A stream of panicked refugees ran for their lives. General Albertone was shot from the saddle and taken prisoner. Several thousand Ethiopians had died, but Albertone's brigade was destroyed and the Italian left flank collapsed. General Baratieri was with General Aramondi's brigade positioned in the mountain passes. The white Italian soldiers were cheerful, with one officer saying, Ah, they won't get away today. Given that no one knew what was going on, we can forgive that guy for his extreme optimism. Then Baratieri received a message from Dabormida. Hour 915, extensive Ethiopian encampment observed to the north of Adwa. A strong column heads from this encampment towards Albertone's position. I am reaching out to Albertone, and I'm also keeping watch on the heights to my right. Baratieri assumed reaching out to Albertone meant that Dabormida had linked up with Albertone. He had not. Dabormida was two miles away while his comrade's brigade was being butchered. That huge column he saw taking off was Menelik's attack into the Italian center that was going to lose them the battle in like five minutes. But this message caused Baratieri to think everything was going well, like, okay, he's reaching out to Albertone, everything's good. Remember back in the Chains of Command episode when I talked about how the fog of war works? Bad information, false information, gave Baratieri a poor picture of the battle. He had no idea how bad things were. His first clue was when what was left of Albertone's brigade came running for their lives. Baratieri ordered them to halt, but they booked it right past him, like, nope, 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 nope. Because behind them were like 30,000 Ethiopians with victory in their sights. Eberamondi's brigade had like five seconds to react. The Italian artillery fired on its own retreating soldiers trying to stop this massive flood of humanity, but it was hopeless. Aramondi's brigade was positioned in a mountain pass, which was supposed to be like a fatal funnel, a choke point for the Ethiopian attackers. 
but the light-footed Ethiopian infantry just climbed the mountains to either side and shot straight down into the packed Italian formation. The Italians fought back, making bayonet charges, but the blizzard of accurate rifle fire was too much. One Italian soldier remembered. There was such a hail of bullets. They ricocheted from every direction, whistling, screaming, howling in our ears, such that we couldn't tell from where they came. Italian officers in their bright red sashes were easy targets. Of the 610 Italian officers at Adwa, only 258 survived, an almost 60% loss rate. The Ethiopians pinned the Italians in the mountains, then they used the Athena strategy, working their way around the flanks. Then Menelik committed his final reserve, 25,000 Shawa infantry, to penetrate into the Italian rear. General Aramandi was killed by a rifle ball and his brigade disintegrated. Elena's reserve brigade had barely arrived, for it too was swept up and shredded. Bartieri saw no choice but to fall back, but any hope of an orderly retreat died when the Oromo cavalry arrived. The Oromo were Muslims from the eastern deserts of Ethiopia, and they had a particular habit that terrified the Italians. They liked to, um, unman their fallen enemies. This wasn't exactly uncommon in this part of Africa. Castration was a way to take away your enemy's manhood, their masculinity, a way of extinguishing their bloodline. Very serious in a culture so focused on ancestry. For Christian Ethiopians, it also deprived someone of the right to salvation. The book of Deuteronomy 23.1 says, No man whose testicles have been crushed or whose organ has been severed shall become a member of the assembly of the Lord. Says it in the Bible, good enough for me. You lose your bits, no salvation for you. Emperor Menelik wanted Italian prisoners alive and unharmed. He told his commanders... Bring me the man, not the testicles. Which, if he had to say that, should tell you something. And a lot of people ignored him. The Ethiopians were particularly furious at the Italians because by trying to conquer their country and subjugate them and demean them by saying they were less than human, they were insulting Ethiopian manhood. So this was a response to the humiliation of the scramble for Africa. There was some nad chopping that day at Adwa. And the Oromo were particularly well-known for cutting off people's nads. They literally rode into battle with dried scrotums laced around their horses' necks, like war trophies from all the nutsacks they've already cut off. So, I made this guy up. You are 17-year-old Giovanni Marcelli. You're an Italian conscript who just left Naples three weeks ago, and now you're in Ethiopia and some psycho is riding towards you with a ring of severed nutsacks around his horse's neck. What are you going to do? The Italians ran as fast as they could in every direction. Baratieri described his attempts to stop the rout. All was at an end and no orderly retirement could be organized. The officers sought in vain to hold their troops at one of the successive positions. Soldiers like madmen threw away rifles and ammunition because they thought that if they were captured unarmed, they would not be castrated. Many were shot or run down as they fled. Others, deciding that they would rather die than be captured or castrated, took revolvers and blew their brains out. But hundreds, uh, several thousand Italian prisoners, were scooped up unharmed according to Menelik's orders, nads intact. 
This left only Dabormida's brigade still stuck in the ravine as the Ethiopian army closed in. Dabormida kept sending messages begging for reinforcements. The messages were going into the void. <laughs> he would be waiting for those reinforcements for the rest of his life, which wasn't very long. Dabormida ordered his brigade to retreat out of the ravine at 3 p.m. But as soon as the Italians left their defensive positions, the Ethiopian melee troops were on top of them. Hardly had they got clear of the trenches, and the Ethiopians dashed forward with furious yells, and butchered every one of them with swords and lances. The Italians scrambled to escape the ravine, flanked by high ground on both sides, and soon there was a traffic jam. The troops struggled to climb the rocky slopes, getting caught in the scrub brush or tripping into crevices. Then the Oromo cavalry showed up, ready to play Hackasack. <laughs> Hackasack. And then it was every man for himself. One Ethiopian soldier, Basha Gabre, remembered General Dabormida's last stand. He and several of his comrades closed in on the general next to a boulder. The old man killed three of his comrades with revolver shots, but Basha Gabre ducked behind a tree. When Dabormida turned to look for another target, the young Ethiopian peered around the tree, aimed his rifle, and shot him through the torso. Basha Gabre took Dabormida's officer Saber, a beautiful piece, and later presented it to Emperor Menelik II. Before the battle, Dabormida had said that Italy would rather lose thousands of men than make a dishonorable retreat. He probably didn't expect to be one of them, and as it turned out, Italy got both. By nightfall on March 1st, 1896, the Battle of Adwa was over. And if I have to tell you, Yes, it was a crushing Ethiopian victory. The Italian army in Africa had ceased to exist. All of its artillery and baggage and camp supplies had been captured, along with most of its weapons. 4,000 Italians and 2,000 Ascaris were killed, including two generals, and another 2,000 Italians and 2,000 Ascaris captured, including General Abertone. To their surprise, most of the Italian prisoners were fed clothed, given medical attention, treated very well. Notably, way better than Europeans ever treated African prisoners in this time period. Tetu, Alula, and Mengesha wanted all the Italian prisoners killed, but Menelik ensured that they were treated well. This is his, um, this is his savvy pragmatism at work. The prisoners were a valuable bargaining tool in the future peace treaty with Italy, and treating European prisoners well was a smart diplomatic move. It would prove Ethiopia's civilization to the other European powers. It would be good PR. The captured Ascaris were not so lucky. Ras Alula, whose Tigrayan homeland had provided many of Italy's African soldiers, regarded them as the worst kind of traitors. You are Abyssinian. You have a Nagus. You have an emperor. And yet you have sold another in the king of Italy. You are fighting against your brothers. For that, I will punish you, and I will cut off your hands. Many of the Eritrean Ascaris were castrated and had their right hands and left feet cut off. This was a horribly brutal fate that incited much criticism at the time and ever since. Allowing this was one of Menelik's worst decisions, and it is still a source of bitterness between Eritrea and Ethiopia today. There was celebration in the Ethiopian camp. Bonfires blazed as they drank Tej, Ethiopian honey wine, and retold stories of the great battle, stories that would go into legend. 
The Ethiopian troops showed off war trophies from the Italian dead, like watches and rings. Apparently, I think General Aramandi's watch eventually was discovered in a pawn shop in Addis Ababa like a year later, but his body was never found. Sergeant Giovanni Tadone, an Italian prisoner, remembered the Ethiopian victory party. Between the sounds of the Ethiopian drums, the war dances, the assorted cries, the flames of the fires reaching up to the sky for several meters, the fantasy of it all, the cries and the continuous firing of guns in the end deprived me of my remaining grip on reason. Two days later, on March 3rd, Menelik presided over a victory march in Adwa. People from all the local villages gathered to see the clergy carrying the sacred relics, thanking God for their glorious victory, followed by a band of drums and horns. Then came Menelik himself, Nagusa Nagast, King of Kings, the Lion of Judah, Emperor of Ethiopia. The Italian prisoners were paraded before him. They had expected a bloodthirsty savage, but found a calm, smiling leader, still wearing that floppy hat. This was the man who had humiliated a European army, a white army, in the largest battle of the scramble for Africa. But Ethiopia paid a high price for its victory, at least 7,000 dead and probably far more. The wailing of women rose above the cheers as Ethiopia's mothers and wives mourned their fallen. Later on, back in the capital city, Menelik would hold a solemn ceremony, a long line of Ethiopian families marched past his throne, each stopping in front of him so he could see the individual personal sorrow on their faces. Then he gave them a word of acknowledgement, go, and they moved on. The procession took five days as the Lion of Judah recognized the fallen of his nation. The news of Adwa sparked outrage in Italy. Public buildings were closed, protests flooded the streets, Italian women sent petitions asking all troops to be removed from Italy, student protesters chanted, Long live Menelik, maybe one of the first anti-colonial demonstrations in European history, and mobs attacked Crispy's house. Within a few days, on March 9th, Prime Minister Crispy resigned. His political career had been Crispy creamed. General Baratieri was court-martialed, but acquitted. I mean, of all the Italian leaders, he was kind of the least at fault for the whole disaster, but he was still responsible. And he did blame the defeat on his troops being cowardly, which is always what bad leaders say. Italians worried that Menelik would follow up his victory and invade Eritrea, and historians have often wondered why he didn't drive the Italians out of Africa entirely. Not much could have stopped him. But Menelik had always been very careful. His army had suffered heavy losses, he was almost out of supplies, and most of all, he knew that attacking the Italian colony might be going too far. That d invading Eritrea and attacking the Italian settlements might force the Italian people to turn their failed war, just something they could write off, into a national crusade for vengeance. Menelik knew not to humiliate the Italians so much that it forced them to respond, so he quit while he was ahead. Instead of pushing his luck, Menelik marched his army and the Italian prisoners back home to Addis Ababa. On October 23, 1896, six months after the battle, Italy and Ethiopia signed the Treaty of Addis Ababa, which ended the Italo-Ethiopian War. It completely annulled the Treaty of Wuchale. 
Menelik returned the Italian prisoners, and Italy agreed to pay him 10 million lira, supposedly for their upkeep, but actually a ransom. The treaty confirmed the borders of 1889, leaving half of Tigray as part of Eritrea. But most importantly, Italy agreed to recognize Ethiopia as an independent and sovereign state on par with any other nation on earth. This part, this right here, was enormous. No African state had ever been given this level of recognition by a European power. Ethiopia was being treated like a real country. Soon the British, the French, the United States were sending diplomats to Ethiopia, and they spoke to Menelik with the acknowledgement that Ethiopia was a legitimate state. It had joined the community of internationally recognized nations in the eyes of the West. And by 1900, Ethiopia was the only truly independent African state on the map, the last kingdom in Africa. The Battle of Adwa is the great triumph of Ethiopian history. It basically forged modern Ethiopia. It was their victory. It belonged to all of them. They had all come together to win it, and it brought Ethiopia onto the world stage. After the battle, Menelik brought in tons of European experts. He founded the Ethiopian National Bank and the Ethiopian Post Office. He started a railroad that would link the capital to French Djibouti and the outside world. And he brought electricity to Addis Ababa, the city he and Taitu had basically founded. Menelik also began the long process of abolishing slavery. This was the birth of the modern state of Ethiopia. Of course, Menelik's unification was not always peaceful. He still waged wars to establish his authority in the south and east, wars that could be quite brutal in their own right, but that created Ethiopia's current borders. Was he always a good person? Was this a universally positive rule? No, but much nastier people are still celebrated today. Adwa Victory Day is, to this day, an Ethiopian public holiday, one of their big national holidays, with enormous parades and ceremonies and concerts where men and women don traditional dress and wave the Ethiopian flag. Ethiopian women are especially celebrated for their role in the battle, and Empress Taitu Betul's image is just as prominent as Menelik's. Every Ethiopian city and region has its own set of Adwa heroes. And then, of course, you have the paintings I mentioned at the beginning of this episode of a holy victory, a national victory, with St. George delivering Ethiopia from the hands of the invader. If you want a sense of how big this history still is in Ethiopia today, there's this pop artist named Teddy Afro, like the biggest pop singer in modern Ethiopia. Look up his 2012 song, Ticker So, which celebrates Menelik's victory at Adwa. It is very catchy but I have no idea what he's saying. I do not know Amharic. But the music video is also a pretty good representation of how Ethiopians view Adwa today. And the Ticker So album is the highest selling record in Ethiopian history. This battle is still very important to them. But Adwa isn't just an Ethiopian victory. It was one of the decisive battles of world history. An African army had destroyed a European army in open battle and gone on to win the war and confirm its independence. That had never happened before. This meant that Western victory was not inevitable, that the white man wasn't always going to win, that the so-called subhumans of the global south could and would fight back against imperialism. The psychological impact in Africa 
and worldwide was huge. It shattered the aura of European invincibility forever. Italians, like most Europeans, had viewed the Ethiopians as barbarian savages and assumed that their conquest was a matter of time. But after Adwa, they were forced to negotiate with and recognize at least one African country as an equal. Adwa became a beacon for anti-colonial movements everywhere, like many of the uh, anti-colonialist, anti-imperialist movements of the 20th century looked directly to Adwa as their inspiration. And Ethiopia became a symbol of African liberation, in absolute repudiation of white supremacy and the narrative of black inferiority. Menelik's victory unironically gave the Western oppressed peoples of the world what they most needed. Hope. The Pan-African Movement, a worldwide alliance of black leaders, turned the story of Adwa into a story for the world. African-American leaders saw Ethiopia and Menelik as symbols of black pride and victory. W.E.B. Du Bois cited Ethiopia's continued existence as proof that black people could and should have a voice on the world stage. Ethiopia's ancient culture and Christian church became an inspiration for the very religious African-American community which is why you still see churches called Abyssinian and Ethiopian Baptist churches scattered across the United States. And you have seen Adwa's influence on world history. You have heard it, even if you don't know it. Menelik II passed away in 1913, on the eve of World War I. Ross McConan, the cultured Europhile young hero of Amba Alage, had died before him, so he never did succeed to the throne but his son did. After Empress Sudetu Menelik's daughter died in 1930, the throne passed to her cousin, Ras Makonan's son, who inherited his father's charisma and style. Before he took the throne, his name was Rastafari Makonan. After his coronation, he became Emperor Haile Selassie. It was Haile Selassie who had to confront Italy once again. Adwa had become a national humiliation for Italy, an injury they nurtured for decades. In 1935, Benito Mussolini's fascist government invaded Ethiopia, fueled by cries of revenge for Adwa. And Ethiopia became the first nation to be attacked by European fascism. The odds were much worse in the Second Italo-Ethiopian War. Now the Italians had tanks, aircraft, and they used poison gas on Ethiopian villages. In May 1936, when Italian troops entered Addis Ababa, Mussolini made a public declaration that Adwa had been avenged. But Ethiopia was not conquered. Haile Selassie had escaped, and his message to the United to the League of Nations affirmed that Africa was not going to fade into the night, even if the last African kingdom had been very temporarily conquered. The people of the Ethiopian highlands, fueled by the memory of Adwa, waged a long war of guerrilla resistance. Supported by the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, the Arbignac guerrillas, as they were called, the Arbignac, forced Italy to play counterinsurgency in Ethiopia for years. They were not successful. Italy never really subdued Ethiopia. They were still trying when World War II broke out and the British helped the Ethiopians reclaim their nation. Haile Selassie returned to his capital in 1942, the Lion of Judah once again unconquered. Haile Selassie's prominence as the only independent leader of black Africa, especially during World War II, led to the creation of a new religion. Drawing on his pre-imperial name, 
Rastafari, it was called the Rastafarian Movement. Drawing on both biblical ideals and ideals of black liberation, the Rastafarians see Haile Selassie as the new messiah and Ethiopia as the new Zion, a symbol for black people worldwide. So yes, the Battle of Adwa, you can trace a direct line from Adwa to Bob Marley, and you can thank Emperor Menelik indirectly for the popularity of reggae music. So Adwa was not just a victory for Ethiopia, but for the world, for the global colonized, a triumph for the subjugated nations of the earth, proof that they could resist the chains of the conqueror, an African victory in the imperial age, at the height of the scramble for Africa, when it was assumed that, e that Europeans would rule the world, the moment that the tide began to turn, whenever things seemed darkest, whenever the struggle seemed impossible, there was Adwa. So what does it all mean, James? What's the point? Why should I care? Well, guys, that was the story of the Battle of Adwa. And I don't know about you guys, but I love this one. This is a story I've wanted to tell for a long time. I think Ethiopia is fascinating. I'm super interested in all the tactics and stuff. And it's just a good story. Maybe if you overlook uh, all the chode chopping. Uh, that might be... Yeah. But anyway, if you have a friend who isn't ready for the Crimean War or the Paraguayan War... I would recommend this episode as a good starter to the Unknown Soldiers podcast. So anyway, what are the broader lessons of this story? One of the big things to me is that Ethiopia successfully adapted, evolved, to resist European conquest. And in my opinion, this is highly underrated in most accounts of this battle. Like, this wasn't a few Ethiopian tribals with spears charging the Italian riflemen. They had developed... By the time Menelik II and the Ethiopian army showed up to Adwa, they had spent decades developing their own tactics and techniques specifically designed to defeat the Europeans. All those advantages we talked about, they had an answer for them. Firepower. The Ethiopians spent a lot of time and effort gaining firepower of their own. Tactics. They learned not to fight the Europeans on their terms. They found ways around those tactical advantages, especially avoiding European defenses and drawing them out into the open. Logistics. Menelik and his subordinates conquered the Iron Hand of Logistics, enabling them to bring a much larger and well-supplied army to Adwa. And when it came to divide and conquer, the Ethiopians figured out Italian tricks and banded together when they needed to. The normal European tricks just didn't work. And all this disproves the racist logic of 19th century imperialism. The victory at Adwa did that psychologically for the world, but the reasons that the Ethiopians won are a very logical refutation of racist ideology. You could make the case that Italy was uniquely weak, or that Ethiopia was uniquely strong, or that Italy made a bunch of bad decisions and Ethiopia made a bunch of good decisions— but that means that white nations could be weak, black nations could be strong, white people could mess up, and the black people could make good decisions. That it was all a matter of culture and environment and geography and history and resources and individuals influencing history. Skin color was not a factor. Another lesson, racism isn't just wrong, immoral, and unethical. It also makes you stupid. Italy routinely underestimated their African enemies. Like, most of the Italian decisions don't even make sense unless you take racism into account. 
Like, come on. You're going to attack a much larger, better-armed army on their home turf. Add in some truly atrocious Italian leadership, some very good Ethiopian leadership, and yeah, the outcome is only surprising if you're operating on 1890s logic and assume that black people are inherently inferior. So the Battle of Adwa shattered that logic. It was a victory not just for Ethiopia, but for the oppressor against the oppressed, the supposedly subhuman over the supposedly superhuman, for Africa against Europe, for the colonized versus the colonizer. It was a beacon for the world. But we all know that modern Ethiopian history hasn't been so positive. In 1974, Haile Selassie was overthrown by a communist movement called the Derg, bringing an end to the seven centuries of the Solomonic dynasty. And this was not an improvement. The Derg was very brutal and oppressive, and it finally came to an end in 1991. Then Eritrea fought a long and bloody war of independence from Ethiopia, and Eritrea is kind of a hell state. Don't go on vacation there. Ethiopia has been racked by civil war, famine, and bloodshed as long as I've been alive. There are better times than there are worse times. These days are a little better. But in the 2020s, a war broke out between the Ethiopian and Eritrean governments and a separatist movement in Tigray. The region that was once the stronghold of the Ethiopian empires is still not reconciled to its division between Eritrea and Ethiopia, or its second-place status to Shawa and Addis Ababa. The old feuds of Menelik's day have still not healed. Nowadays, Ethiopia is often the butt of jokes, a throwaway reference to famine or African lack of development, like the starving Ethiopian is a common trope. But they don't deserve to be a joke. Not after Adwa. So next time this ancient nation crosses your mind, remember that once upon a time they were a beacon for the oppressed peoples of the earth. They are still proud of that glory, faded though it may be. And they remember that once upon a time, they were the last kings of Africa. Thanks for listening today. I hope you learned something, even if it's to wear a protective cup if you ever end up fighting an Ethiopian. If you like what you've heard today, tell your friends about it. Like I said, it's a good starter episode. If you don't, tell your enemies. Just check both translations of the treaty they want you to sign. You can check my sources, look at some maps. They're all on my website at theunknownsoldierspodcast.com. Link in the description. If you want to contribute to my book and production fund, I have a donate button there as well. If you have any comments about today's episode, the best way to reach me is to message me on Facebook or email me at unknownsoldierspodcast at gmail.com. I always appreciate feedback and commentary, even if it's just kind words. And if you didn't like the music, you thought the music was hokey, okay, you find public domain ethnic Ethiopian music that won't be distracting during one of these episodes. Seriously, if you do, let me know, because I I, I struggle with the music sometimes to fit the tone and everything and not be offensive. I try. (laughs) And that's all for this month. See you next month for another war you've probably never heard of. The Byzantine-Sasanian War of 602 to 628. Sound exciting? Well, if it doesn't, you should still be excited. See you guys next month, only here on Unknown Soldiers.